This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, uh, we are going to discuss one of the most important issues confronting our democracy today and an issue that's been at the center of the history of American democracy and global democracy in many ways, uh, the uses of energy and how democracies deal with transitions in the sources and distribution of energy to citizens and other actors uh, within their spaces. Uh, We have with us today one of the uh, foremost experts uh, and a wonderful friend, Uh, We go back a long way. Uh, Clark Miller, professor at uh, Arizona State University. Clark is really a pioneer studying uh, the intersection between energy, politics, uh, environment, uh, and uh, and democracy. Uh, Among his many, many uh, accomplishments, uh, Clark is the director of the Center for Energy and Society at Arizona State University. He's a professor in the School uh, for the Future of Innovation and Society. That's that's a great name for a school. And uh, he leads a sustainability team at the Quantum Energy and Sustainability Solar Technologies Photovoltaics Energy Research Center. Uh, for the past decade, and even longer, uh, his research has explored the human dimensions of large-scale transitions in the energy sector and the potential challenges and opportunities for leveraging energy transitions uh, for human improvement. Uh, Clark, you're a busy man these days, aren't you? I am. Yeah, thank you for that kind introduction. It's great to have you here, Clark. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion uh, with uh, Clark Miller, we have, of course, our uh, scene-setting poem from Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Eulogy. Eulogy. Well, let's hear it. Eulogy. Oil. Old greasy elixir of smoke-filled Saturdays and moths changing color in Industrial Revolution-era Britain. The dormant remnants of dinosaurs listless in the gasoline tanks of petrol stations across a thousand oil-rich utopias. West Texas or Saudi desert. The hidden shale pockets of millennia of plants, ages of animals, the way it used to wait in the cold metal tanks to explode in an excessive, smoky, passionate cloud diffusing towards the stratosphere. What an odd thing it must have seemed to the first person who thought to take the black spouts of carbon viscosity shot heavenward into some primitive metal contraption to somewhere turn an axle, a wheel, and world civilization. It seems a little sad to think about it now, to try and imagine a world slowly sinking into the forgotten wetlands of ergonomic obscurity. The ultimate fungible, the universal black gold, the barrels refined not into gasoline but into the electric renaissance to save the planet. Oil. Sad body that lies in state at every gas station now erecting electric superchargers. Sad corpse of hazy duality. Good father of the American interstate. False mother of the stalwart corporate environmental destruction. We remember you as we would a great statesman. We sing of your great progress pushing the liquidized dust of mastodons that turned on a light bulb in a farmer's house in these hills millions of years later. We remember you as we would a great statesman. We pray for you to be redeemed beyond this threshold. We whisper of the glories of misremembered memory, but in the eyes of all, linger the tidal wounds of your smokestacks finally ebbing. Wow. There's a lot in that, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem was really about um, how we need to recognize as a society uh, that oil has brought a lot of good good to us, but that it has also caused a great number of 
a great deal of harm. And we need to, rec- we need to recognize that tr- transition from fossil fuels like oil and coal uh, is inevitable. And we need to accept that. And we need to understand the uh, historical uh, reasons that we are at this moment. Hmm. And see it as an opportunity in many ways, right? right? Well, Clark, I think that's a perfect spot to turn to you. Um, one of the things I know you've worked on are the, are the ways in which energy technologies and ex- energy transitions are, are not just changes in technology, right? They're, they're social, they're economic, they're cultural or political transformations. How, how do we understand the intersection between these these elements? Yeah, I mean, I thought Zachary's poem was fantastic in that regard. I mean, so many different facets of American society and really global society uh, have been built in, around, and through these new energy technologies as they Uh, get developed. I mean, there was a phrase in there about uh, the American highway system. Yes. I mean, just think about that for a minute, right? If you want want to think about what has uh, symbolized freedom to Americans for the last 100 years, it's this idea of the automobile, right? The idea that you could get in your car and you could just drive, right? right? And you could go to the national parks, which you know, again, you think about Yosemite, you think about Yellowstone, you think about all these different parks all over the country that so, uh, you know, are so important to our sense of national character uh, and and the national significance of our landscape and how that was opened up to the American public uh, because we could drive, uh, you know, and and how that process helped create a very different kind of world, a different kind of community. Uh, You think about what that did to our cities. I mean, what have we been talking about in terms of American politics uh, for the last uh, uh, eight years, uh, maybe 28 years, maybe 58 years, I don't know, uh, but the suburbs, right? Yes. Uh, The suburbs as a space in which American elections are contested time and time and time again. Uh, the hearts and minds of this, this population that's not urban and yet not rural, right? And the suburbs, of course, are a product of the automobile society. I live in a giant suburb called Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's really, it's a society here that's been created around the automobile. You literally cannot walk as a pedestrian in the vast majority of uh, Phoenix because it's not designed for pedestrians. They're, things are too far apart. The streets are, are, are not safe places to be as a pedestrian. Um, there are walls around neighborhoods. It's just uh, so much of how we think about culture and society and then our political economy uh, are, are structured. I mean, think about how important it was that GM took a loan from the federal government to survive the financial collapse in 2008. Of course. And how, you know, symbolic that was as a, uh, as a statement about where we are, are, do we need to be worried about American capitalism? Because all of a sudden General Motors, right, the, the kind of symbol of, of, of industrial dominance of America, of the world, uh, is is now dependent on a bailout uh, kind of thing, right? So there's just so many dimensions in which when we create new technologies like oil, 
uh, as energy sources, uh, and we create new technologies like automobiles that use energy in new ways and allow us to do new things uh, with those, we create whole new forms of living, whole new uh, ways of imagining ourselves. I mean, I like to talk about people cars, <laughs> right? Because uh, as a hybrid entity, yes, right? Because the car, of course, doesn't go anywhere. I mean, I forget the robots that are driving around my my neighborhood these days, the Waymo robots. But, uh, you know, the, the traditional car for 100 years, it didn't go anywhere unless somebody got behind the wheel and took it right. Right? and drove it. But at the same time, that very act of getting behind the wheel of an automobile, purchasing an automobile, it transforms you as a person. You imagine the world in different ways. And, you and, think and, about time and distance differently. And, and that's exactly where I, I wanted us to sort of dig a little deeper, because this is w- where your work has been so pioneering, Clark. I mean, how do we understand how those, de- those decisions are made? You, you gave a, a great sort of overview of the consequences and implications uh, to our social beings that come from technological choices. But, but how do we make these decisions? What's the process in a democracy, at least historically to this moment, that we have made decisions about where to put interstate highways, who to bail out, which technologies to support in which moments? How does that happen? Well, you know, it happens through multiple mechanisms, and I think that's part of what it means to live in a democracy, right? So, so some of those decisions have been made by uh, individuals voting with their feet, so to speak. Right? So if you look at the great movements out into the suburbs, uh, those, uh, a lot of that movement was driven by individual purchasing decisions. And, and there's a way in which the history of American cities is of city transportation departments trying to catch up yes. Yes. with the movement of individual citizens making decisions uh, with their own purchasing power, their own... Uh, their own choices about where they want to to live. But at the same time, uh, there have been other moments uh, where those decisions are made by democratic institutions, right? Mm -hmm. So the American highway system is a product of Congress. Yes. Congress said in 1965, we need an ability to move the U.S. military across this country at high speed, uh, and so we are going to deploy... Um, these vast interstate highway systems to give us the wherewithal to do that if we need to. And, oh, by the way, this will be awesome for America. Right. Right. It will open up all kinds of opportunities for uh, moving goods and services, and that will grow the economy for moving people around the country, and that will help create a national labor market that will do all kinds of good things for us. Right. So there was all these different dimensions to it. So as a national political decision. But then the one that I think is most interesting, because not most interesting of all, but most interesting in the sense that most people aren't aware of it, is the energy industry also influences these decisions and or makes these decisions at times, um, often because of the needs of the technological infrastructures that they create. So one of the examples of this that I, uh, I... like to tell is about the early history of electricity. Um, In the early days of electricity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, in order to get electricity prices low enough, 
in order to serve everybody, which was an important goal that lots of people had, um, you had to build large-scale power plants. Uh, most of these were fossil fuel-driven, coal, predominantly some oil. Um, <clears throat> and one of the challenges was when you did that, they didn't like to turn off. Those power plants like to run 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm. Human society in the 19th century was not 24-7, 365. <laughs> People got up when the sun came up. They did their business during the day. And for the most part, at night, they went to bed. I mean, you know, the, they're, one of the things that they had time Paris, to sleep. They slept, Clark? Really? <laughs> I mean, they slept. Yeah, I know. It's r- r- ridiculous, right? <laughs> Um, so the utility industry was stuck with this problem that they had all, all, an abundant electricity source at night and relatively little demand uh, for that electricity. And so they went looking for things that they could invest in to make use of that electricity. Right. And so they got cities to light up their streets. They got downtowns to light up their shopping districts. The first shopping districts that were open into the evenings were, in fact, invested in by the electric utility industry. Hmm. Um, the electric utility industry, it turns out, invented the amusement park industry wow. because they used electricity on nights and on weekends, and they could run their electric trams to and from the population areas to those amusement parks and use more electricity. Wow. Uh, you, people often don't know this, but the first radio station, first working uh, radio station and television station in America were both on the campus of General Electric in Schenectady, uh, New York. And, and again, it was about General Electric could sell the TV cameras and the radio equipment and the power transmitters. And at the same time, all the other Edison Electric companies, which were their partners, could sell electricity to the TV stations uh, and the radio stations, and they could sell televisions and radios to houses and homeowners, and they could sell electricity to run those TVs and radios. So, so Clark, this this perfectly goes into one of our student questions, which which was yeah. about just this, which is lobbying interest groups. Uh, the vision you initially painted was was a vision of uh, a variety of inputs, a pluralistic democracy, a Madisonian democracy, a topic mm. we've talked a lot about on the podcast in various weeks uh, of different different groups, different individuals voting with their feet, as you said. Um, but it also appears at times that certain powerful interests uh, have a great deal of, of influence. My name is Clay McPherson, and I'm a mechanical engineering senior. My question is, how can the government overcome lobbying from the fossil fuels industry in order to act in the interests of the average citizen? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and I think the, uh, y- you know, what, we have, I think, a bit misunderstood or, or, or maybe just not paid enough attention to in our theories of democracy is uh, what happens to democracy, uh, what happens to societies when they uh, become routinized in their forms of life around large infrastructure projects. Mm. Uh, like the oil industry and the automobile industry and and the and the kinds of lives that they let us lead 
because I think the power of these industries is not just because they're, they have a lot of money. It's because they're wrapped up in our ordinary, uh, our ordinary lives. Yes. In uh, day-to-day ways that uh, become very unnerving if you start to ask the question, well, okay, I bought a house that's seven miles from where I work. How am I going to get there if I can't drive my car? Right. 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 And we know from all kinds of data that one of the biggest dimensions of unemployment is access to transportation. Right. 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 And so it goes to those fundamental questions of economic security. And I would say, you know, we saw that, I think, in the 2016 election, where you find people who have had very productive uh, economic livelihoods have those threatened when we start to say, you know, we have to change these big infrastructures. Yes. We know we have to change them, but that does present a set of risks to a whole bunch of people. Uh, and it's not just 60,000 coal miners. Right. Uh, there are a million people in the United States that work directly in the fossil fuel uh, infrastructure, and there are a whole bunch more who work in ancillary fields like... Um, internal combustion engine. Uh, so if you think about it, your local auto parts store, your local auto repair mechanic, uh, all of these folks work heavily with internal combustion engines. Sure. Turns out electric vehicles are much simpler in terms of their operational technologies. Uh, so we expect them to have much lower repair needs. Uh, and that could significantly impact small businesses in every community in America. Of course, of course. So, so your argument is, and it's a really important observation, is that it's not just about those who are lobbying on behalf of the fossil fuel industry per se. It's the way it's built into our everyday lives that actually make all of us promoters of the system uh, in our daily behavior. Yeah, and so to go directly to the question, how do you overcome yes. this in our political discussions, I think that's one of the reasons why when you begin to engage in these questions about these large infrastructure transitions that are so central to our lives, you have to make those robust democratic conversations that trans, that go out into uh, our democratic populace uh, in a way that we've become less comfortable doing in some sense uh, in the late 20th century, despite the internet Despite social media and our ability to reach people, uh, we've, we've become much more elitist in how we organize policy decision-making uh, and much more closed and secretive about those processes. And I think these large transitions demand that we open up those conversations uh, in a more uh, involved and engaged way on the part of democratic public. Well, and, and this is one of our themes of the podcast. What does that look like around energy? What if, if you could design the conversation, if you were the grand facilitator, which I understand would actually then <laughs> reinforce the, the problem of elitism, but, but, but what should this conversation look like? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I go back to the previous transition 100 years ago, um, there's a really interesting uh, book that a guy named Samuel Insull published in, in 1914 and 1915. Huh. It's, a, it's a set of his speeches. He was the president of Chicago Edison, wow. the company that wanted to be established as the 
electric utility for the entire city of Chicago. So what did he do? I mean, he had to sell the idea that in America, the land of capitalism, you would give a single company the right to sell electricity within uh, a fixed territory. No competition. Right. It's a monopoly. How do you sell that idea of a regulated monopoly? Well, the answer is he went to every Elks Club, every Chamber of Commerce, every city council, and he gave talks about his ideas, and then he listened to the conversation. And it's really interesting, but, you know, if I think about our electric utilities here in Arizona, for example, and the conversation that we've been having about the future of energy here in the state, they have been reluctant at every turn to have a conversation with the public. And so we've had some small exercises that we've been able to facilitate. We brought 150 business and civic and policy leaders together for three days to talk about the future of Arizona's energy and the utilities were like, are you kidding me? Hmm. We really have to come and be part of this conversation. <laughs> you know, and, and then recently we had a California billionaire who put a ballot initiative on the ballot to force a constitutional amendment. And, and of course, then they poured $75 million into advertising to, to defeat this thing. And they then decided that was a really bad idea. Right. Right. <laughs> they didn't like to spend that money. Um, but, you know, they had to be forced into a, a, a larger public conversation about this. And I just think that's a mistake. And I would really like to see real leadership from the energy sector uh, sort of stepping out and saying, uh, you know, hey, we know that these are issues that are going to be important for our communities. They have a lot of, of presence in local communities. I think electric utilities in particular... And, Let me give you the reason why electric utilities are so important to this discussion. Right now, about a quarter of our electricity, or sorry, a quarter of our energy usage runs through electricity. The other three quarters of it is we burn fuel. Hmm. But in the future, because of electric vehicles, because of other strategies for uh, creating renewable energy for heavy industry, et cetera, we expect that maybe as much as 75% of our energy use will be electrified. That's a huge growth opportunity for electric utilities, but it also puts them much more centrally in the driver's seat in terms of the future of energy than they've been even in the past. And wow. so I, I really think electric utilities have to step up and say this is a, a constitutional moment for our societies and we're going to leverage our position, our significance in the future of energy to say uh, we want to have a conversation with you, the people of Phoenix, about what that future is going to look like. Well, wow. that, that does sound like an, a really crucial uh, opportunity. I know Zachary has a question here. Zachary? Yeah. Uh, you talked a lot about uh, economic inequality and how uh, uh, energy transitions are often a representative of, of such inequality. But when we're talking about this, there's also um, a, a very important uh, way in which uh, these sort of energy uh, choices have been used to define communities along racial lines, along uh, lines that are based around like immigrant backgrounds or not. I mean, for example, like Austin is divided by the very interstate highway systems that gave the right. uh, freedom to so many. So how do we think about energy in relation to racial equality? 
Yeah, that's a great question, too. Let me just start by observing that one of the central questions of the coming energy transition, in my view, is how concentrated will energy wealth be in the future? So the reality is at the moment that our existing energy infrastructures are concentrate energy wealth in a very severe way. Um, uh, you know, ownership over energy assets, uh, the, the production and sale of, uh, of energy goods and services is a very centralized business. And, uh, you know, I mean, a couple of years ago, I looked at the list of the global Fortune 500 companies, largest companies in the world by capitalization. Sure. In the top 20, 16 of them were either... Uh, electricity companies, oil companies, or automobile companies. Right. You, you've described Texas, right? Clark. You've described <laughs> Texas. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the reality is that um, our renewable energy technologies, and particularly solar, which everybody expects will constitute at least 50% of the world's energy supply going forward uh, when we get to mid-century and beyond, um, are, is a much more flexible technology. The sun shines everywhere not always in the same intensity, I can tell you, living in Phoenix. <laughs> um, but it does shine everywhere, and it shines at such high levels of intensity that you can actually generate energy pretty much anywhere on the planet from solar panels. Mm -hmm. um, during the day, of course. Uh, and so, and of course, the other thing is that the scaling laws that we've seen with large-scale fossil fuel infrastructures don't apply nearly as much with solar. You can generate low-cost solar with much smaller installations than you can with uh, fossil fuel infrastructures. And so there's at least the possibility that the energy future, the wealth in the energy future will be much less um, uh, concentrated than it is with the existing energy infrastructure. In fact, it'd be almost hard to make it as concentrated, but not impossible. So I often show people a picture of a set of Phoenix suburbs, and I actually put the picture up twice on the screen. It's the same picture. It's a suburb. It's got a, about half the houses have solar panels on the roof. Mm -hmm. And I say on the left, you see a picture of a world in which each individual homeowner owns the solar panels on the top of their home, and they, they reap the revenue stream that comes from that solar energy. And in fact, you can't see it, but they trade electricity using Bitcoin-enabled peer-to-peer trading networks. Hmm. Wow. Um, and it's a, it's a libertarian dream of the future of America, right? We're all our own little economic producers and consumers. On the other picture, which is exactly the same picture, I say in this picture, Elon Musk owns every rooftop in America. Right? And he's the largest single utility operator that the planet has ever seen. Right. Right? And so, you know, the technology is flexible, but we have choices to make. Yes. About which futures we decide to build. Uh, and, and so to come back to the question about racial justice, I think we need to take this energy transition that we're about to go through uh, and we need to make sure that it has two outcome criteria attached to it. The first being, of course, carbon neutrality. We've got to get to the point where we're not 
driving the planet ecosystems out of whack, completely out of whack with our energy infrastructure. Right. Right. But the second has to be human progress. We have to leverage this transition to do good, um, to make these investments, and we're talking about huge investments to make this infrastructure train, change. Uh, by one estimate, the International Energy Agency, $70 trillion to make this change. $70 trillion? Yeah. So if you're going to spend that much money, right, seven years worth of the U.S. economy, U.S. GDP, right, you cannot do that and not reap human benefits as well as carbon benefits uh, from that. And so I think we need to think explicitly about how do we arrange the future of energy uh, so that it benefits communities that we have systematically disadvantaged in the past, right? So that it delivers goods uh, in positive ways to all kinds of different uh, groups. And we have to make sure that the sacrifice zones, and we will have them, I mean, uh, the, you know, we have to do mining to make solar panels. Right. We have to think about what we're doing with all the waste that will be the future solar panels that we have to take down because they don't last forever. Um, so we have to think about, you know, how we're, you know, where we're getting these materials, what we're doing with these materials, and make sure that we're not systematically disadvantaging certain kinds of communities uh, and creating new forms of environmental injustice, even as we solve old forms of right. environment. And this comes back to your, your point earlier about, about a more democratic, inclusive conversation, which would, which would be one of the protections against that concentration. Uh, another one of our students, uh, Sira Diallo, has a question that relates to this. She, she asks uh, about how we should think about the role of government uh, versus privatization. Hello, my name is Sira Diallo, and I'm a freshman in Plan 2 Honors. My question is as follows. Is it fair for the government to even manage these new energy forms? I feel as though traditionally they've been privately managed as they greatly affect the economy. If the government decides to get involved and create laws pertaining to the use of this new energy, are they further intervening in the U.S. economy? So it's interesting because um, I- I'm anticipating from the question that your, your student is from Texas. Um, I think uh, so which is a, obviously a place where energy has been privatized. Yes. But the reality is globally that half the world's energy supply uh, is provided by state-owned organizations, and half the world's energy supply is provided by private enterprise. Right. Uh, just as a point um, of record, so, Austin, Austin owns its own. The city of Austin owns the right. utility that provides energy to the entire city of Austin. That's exactly right. And there are several other cities like that around the United States. So... You know, energy, because of its centrality to supporting industrialization, is one of those places where historically we've had both public power and private power. And the debate about how to organize the power sector uh, has always been a robust political debate. And, And we need to get back to the point where I think we can have those kinds of conversations and debates um, you know, as we move forward, because it is going to be critical. And, and I don't think the answer is obviously one way or another. Hmm. I think what we're likely to see is complicated hybrids at every stage of the game. 
Um, and, you know, let me just give you an example about Please. why. The, the Green New Deal folks like to say, well, let's just take over the energy industry, make it clean, and we'll be done with it. Uh, you know, and I was at a Green New Deal conference, and this was the kind of logic that was being put forward time and time again, and I, and, and I thought... And I, and I thought, this doesn't seem right to me. And so I went looking. And in fact, if you look historic, not historically, but today, at the renewable energy deployments that have been made worldwide, the state-owned half of the world's energy supply is behind, significantly behind, in terms of renewable energy investments, hmm. the privately-owned industry. Wow. Private industry is, is way ahead. Uh, on renewable energy investment. So, you know, it's. I think we're always going to see that governments want to be involved, that there are important public values at play in the energy space that we need to make sure are protected. Uh, at the same time, we, we know that there are ways in which markets deliver uh, products and services efficiently if you do them well, if you control and make sure that they're the you know market failures are not creating problems that you need to you know that cause other kinds of issues and so forth so you know i think it's going to be complicated messes um, historically what that has meant is that the energy sector tends to be more insulated from public dialogue right um, more, you have to have more expertise in order to play in those conversations. It mitigates against the kind of things that I'm have been calling for, and that's one of the real challenges Absolutely. that I think we have to confront. Absolutely. So we always like to close, Clark, with a with a discussion looking forward. Um, and wh- what are you most excited about? What do you see as the real uh, exciting possibilities that our young listeners should be? aligning themselves with obviously the green new deal is something you're partially excited about but it has its limitations what do you think young people should be joining up and doing right now if they care about the environment and energy transitions and a sustainable planet uh, what what should they be doing um you know i think that they should be um i think they should be active and vocal in pursuing um, uh, clean energy initiatives for their own community. Um, and I say this because I think one of the most important driving forces for opening up public dialogue about our clean energy future has come when we have seen groups of people say, here's a vision of an energy future that we are really excited about. And some of those have been community energy initiatives where you've had a a neighborhood or a town that has said, here's something we want to do. So we recently spent a year uh, in dialogue between the city of Tempe and the Salt River Project, which provides most of their electricity Uh, in which the city council was sort of saying, hey, you know, we think we need to get to 100% renewable here in Tempe. And the Salt River Project said, yeah, 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 we're not going to go there. (laughs) And so we had, you know, we had a robust debate and a robust conversation, and a lot of good has come out of that. And SRP has 
come entirely around and they're now committed as an as a company to 90% reductions in their carbon emissions by uh, 2050. Uh, so not just for Tempe, but for the whole East Valley, uh, two and a half million people. Uh, so, you know, I think that's the kind of change that can happen, but it all, but in this case, and I won't say Tempe drove it all, there were lots of other things going on uh, at the same time, but it's when local groups um, get excited about new energy options that these organizations get the, get the message, right? right? So one of the things that's happened here in the Valley is we just had a huge number of individual households say, hey, we're going to put solar on our roof. Hmm. Um, and that was like a wake-up call uh, to the electricity uh, industry. And so I guess I would encourage people, translate that climate activism that you really, really want people, you know, you really want, want your, uh, your, your leaders to get with it on, on solving climate change. Uh, quit trying to make them make policy decisions in effect, and, and start pushing on the idea of, hey, hey, we could design a clean energy future for our neighborhood, uh, for our uh, city. Uh, what would that look like? Um, you know, what, what are the options that are available to us? I think that kind of bottom-up innovation is going to help open up lots of examples of different kinds of things that you can do. I think we're going to see possibilities for... Um, having innovation that's much more inclusive if we do it that way. Uh, and, and it's also just going to make the people who are making both the economic decisions and the policy decisions recognize that the demand is there for something different. And then I think the real cool thing about this is um, I think there is an opportunity to create a kind of new future of abundance. I, I, I'm not one of these people who, who thinks that clean energy is going to magically bring some wonderful future. I, I think we have to explicitly design it to do good for us. Um, but, the, but the opportunities are there uh, to get energy available to low-income communities, for example, at much lower prices then we're currently delivering energy to those communities and in ways that return ownership and therefore returns on investment to those communities so that energy becomes an accelerator of local economic growth in poor areas rather than what it is at the moment, which is in many poor areas, actually something that helps keep people in poverty. Right, right. Right? And so I think we can design so many cool things. And the other thing is there's just... Solar energy is vastly more abundant than any other form of energy that we have. And so if we can really figure out how to unlock its potential, we have the option to make energy available for new kinds of projects and new kinds of initiatives. And every time we've done that in history, Mm -hmm. we've opened up energy at lower cost in more abundance than we've had before. 
we've had huge periods of economic and social progress. Yeah, you 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 stole my point, Clark. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. The, the, the historical lesson is definitely that if you want a more democratic polity with more participation and more opportunity, energy resources, the availability of those resources is absolutely crucial. At every moment, we've seen an expansion of opportunity in our society. We've seen an expansion of access uh, to energy, and and I think that's so well stated. Your your comments, especially that last comment, are, are one of the most eloquent um, descriptions I've heard of a very grassroots, bottom-up, direct-action, democratic approach to uh, policy change around this big, complex issue where the policy discussions often become very abstract and elitist, and, and you've offered us a, a beautiful and pragmatic alternative. Zachary, is, is this attractive to young listeners? Is this something that you think that uh, young listeners like yourself who care about these issues could get behind? Yes, I think that uh, climate change and issues of energy transitions in our society are the number one issue for young people in America. And I think the the real power of these issues is that they unite people from many different groups, from many different backgrounds, and we can each of us gets to articulate our own vision of what our energy future should be. And part of what we have an opportunity to do in the next few years is bring those all together into one national uh, uh, vision for, for an American uh, energy future. Right, right. And young people can feel that this is a place, uh, as Clark described it, where they can make a real difference, right? Well, Clark, thank you for sharing uh, your rich background around these issues, your your deep analysis, and, and also a, a truly idealistic future. I, I've, I've long enjoyed our friendship, Clark, because I think you and I at root are democratic idealists, and it's really wonderful to, to share that with you. Thank you, Clark. Well, thank you, Jeremy. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these ideas in a, in a broader way. Uh, we don't often get to talk about energy in terms other than, uh, you know, electrons and uh, <laughs> the price of oil. So, you know, to talk about it as a thoroughly uh, human and thoroughly democratic space is, is really an important one. So thanks for the opportunity. Well, you're doing the cutting edge work on that issue, Clark. And, and Zachary, thank you as always for an inspiring poem and for uh, deep insights and great questions around these issues. Thank you everyone for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. Thank you. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.